Psalms do for us is they help us understand how to pray. Think of it as a mentor. And you are the apprentice. And the Psalms are helping you understand how to process your life and how to bring those things to God and what to expect to receive from God. So the Psalms are varied in in their tone, in their style, in what they communicate, and they're desperate and honest. They're faith-filled and confident, and they're full of doubt at times, asking where God is, and why aren't you helping me, and do you even hear me? So here's what the Psalms help us do. They help us be human, and healthy humanity looks like trust in God. That's what's at the heart of the Psalms. Now, I realized as we were doing the psalm reading together earlier in the service, this is a long psalm. And I've planned to walk you through every word and verse. <laughs> so, we're, we, we, we've got to make some changes as we go here. But you also notice the readings that we did today, the Proverbs reading, it's a little heavy, a little intense. Right? It's talking about prostitutes, it's talking about being drunk with wine, it's talking about these different issues. I'm going to explain why we we did those readings today. But then we also have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, is our gospel reading, where Jesus, God in flesh, is pouring out his heart in desperation to God. So, we've got a lot to unpack today, and I'm pretty excited about it, because this is a beautiful psalm. So Psalm 102 is called the prayer of an afflicted person. How's that? So this is the prayer of somebody who's going through something really, really hard. And really painful. So as we watch how the psalmist prays, I think it helps us understand how we can then express our hearts when we're going through something painful. Now this is called a psalm of lament. Now, lament isn't language we use a lot in our culture, and I think it's to our detriment. Because lament is about a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Do Canadians do a lot of that? No. We keep it to ourselves, and then we get angry later. Those are like our two things. Keep quiet, then do some angry outbursts. This is a healthy way of how to express disappointment, Grief, pain, and hardship. Now, there are different reasons for lament in the Psalms. We have things like sin causes lament, evil in the world causes lament, exile or becoming a refugee, good reason for lament, suffering, and it's the silence of God and severe hardship. But the Psalms, especially the Psalms of lament, are essential for the Christian life. So the way we work as Anglicans is we use a book called the the Book of Common Prayer. We use that for our daily devotions. And what the Book of Common Prayer does is take you through the Bible in a year. It takes all of the essential kind of prayers in, in Scripture and in church history 
and helps you learn how to pray them on a daily basis. And it walks you through the Psalms as your prayers. You have two options. You can either pray through all the Psalms every 30 days or every 60 days. So the Psalms become part of your daily life to help you express your need and your heart and your faith towards God. Okay? So the Psalms are essential for us. There's something that we hold to and we love and we cherish and they become our words. Now, as we pray them and we find comfort and we find solace in the truth of God, then it helps us see him no matter what the circumstances are that we're going through. So I want to show you, do you have the slide? Okay, so this is the structure of the psalm that we're going to go through. And this is essentially a biblical complaint. So this is how the Bible says you should make your complaints to God. That kind of, so this is like human resources here. Trying to help you know, how do I file a complaint here? No, in, in reality, what it does is it helps us see what kind of our human nature needs. So verses 1 through 3 are the initial petition. This is where we're going to see the raw need and request of the psalmist for help towards God. So it's going to come out kind of like a gush. We'll look at that in a sec. Then verses 3 through 11 is the lament portion. So in this section, it's all just grief, sorrow, and complaints. And he's going to use very dramatic language to express how he's feeling. Okay? Then verses 12 through 22 is where having poured himself out now, he's going to express his trust in God and his praise in God because he sees God rightfully and, and loves God despite everything that he's going through. And then after that, verses 23 to 24, he's going to give a proper petition. So that, what I mean by that is he's going to give a proper request in the right way. Not just angsty, frustrated request like at the beginning, but a more well-rounded, trustful, I see God who you are, and this is what I need. And then it ends, verses 25 to 28, with confidence rooted in a future hope that God's going to be good enough for me. Does that sound like helpful mentorship for how to pray? So let's walk through it. So section one is the petition. This is verses one through three. What we see from him in these words is honest and desperate cries for help. It's an explosion of need. His situation is so bad and so uncomfortable, he just pops. Help me. So verse one, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you! Exclamation mark. Okay? So I want you to just see how it comes out. I need help, and you're the one that I need help from. It's just a big boom. What this does is gives permission to your need, where you are really at. Who should we turn to when things go badly? Now here's the thing. When things are going rough, where's the first place that you give your complaint? 
we tend to, uh, we, and we're going to talk about personality types a little bit here. Some of us shove it all in and we don't tell anyone about it. We just feel it really badly. And some of us are just talking to anyone, anyone we can get our hands on. i got a complaint to tell you about. I may fall into that category. Okay? My initial response isn't always to go directly to God. I just kind of grumble a bit and then start spurting out to people who I'm talking to. But here the psalmist is going to the person he should be going to. He's going to God with it. And it answers the question, does God want us to direct our problems towards him? According to this scripture, yes. This is the appropriate place for your complaints to go. So what Psalm 102 does for us is it compels us to boldly ask that God hear our prayer and directs our groaning to Him. So verse 2, he goes on. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. So the psalmist is asking God, don't be far off from me. Don't hide from me in my problems. Don't avoid me in my neediness, in the moment of my distress. Instead, he's asking that God would lean down, incline your ear to hear what's going on with me. Ultimately, we see God's leaning down towards us most clearly in the birth and life of Jesus. This is God coming near to us in the midst of our problem. Not just from heaven leaning down, but from heaven entering in to the very thing that you're living and experiencing. Isn't that beautiful? But the psalmist is saying here, I need you not only to lean in and hear me, I need you to answer quickly in this day when I call. I need you now. Does it seem a little bold? It's a little desperate, isn't it? But let's be honest. Are our daily problems so serious that we actually need God's intervention? I think they are. The God who creates and sustains us, do you think He wants to be your source of intervention? What we see in Jesus is that, yes, He does. So this is appropriate to say, this is time-sensitive. And to ask God to be in the now. Now here's the thing I think about Jesus. The way of Jesus helps us, breaks us out of a life of pent-up petitions. Because I think we do this as humans. We get pent-up in our needs. And what we see in the life and the suffering of Jesus is His devotion to directing His needs, even though He's God in flesh, he, he directs His needs to God constantly. All through the Scriptures, all through the Gospels, we see Jesus openly asking the Father for what He needs. Pouring out His heart to the Father. Pulling away from things to go. I need to go talk to my Father about all of this. That's Jesus' response to human life. I need more time with the Father to handle this. And He's God. 
And we try to just get by with as little petitions as possible. You ever notice that? So why don't we live that way? I I think it's understandable to not ask God for things because you're not sure you believe God exists. Or you're not sure God cares or will answer you. That's a fair reason to hesitate. Jesus helps you answer those questions. Jesus will help you know the reality of God. Jesus will help you know the heart of God to care for you. Jesus will help you know that it's God's will to answer you, to intervene in your situations. But many of us who follow the way of Jesus don't ask because we don't even want to feel our needs long enough to ask Jesus. We don't want to feel the discomfort of our situations. We'd rather escape them. I think this is what internet's driving for us, is just the option to go, man, this situation sucks. I need to escape. I need to not think about this. I need a break from this. I need to just do this. I think that's what we do. We're just trying to escape the emotions we feel. But what we see in the Proverbs 23 reading that we did today is that if we go to other things to try and help us with our emotions, whether that's sex or whether that's alcohol or whether that's media, we're going to those things to try and find a solution to what's going on inside. I need an escape from this mess. And God is saying, you're meant to direct those problems in my direction. Just like we see in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So now, what we see in section 2, so we know we're meant to direct our petitions to God. In section 2, we see the psalmist lament. This is where he pours out his soul to God. It's raw emotion, and he's trying to find words and descriptors to identify what's going on inside of him and to name what's causing it. Essentially what we see here is that the Psalms are perfect talk therapy to the one God we should be talking to most. So our prayers aren't just, hey, can you do this for me? Like skip the dishes. Our prayers are, these are my needs, but also this is my emotional state in this moment. So watch how he talks. Verse 3. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. His emotional, mental, maybe pain is so acute that it's like he feels it in his bones. For those of you dealing with chronic illness, you know what that feels like. Verse 4, my heart is struck down like grass and has withered. My heart, my will, my desire for life is like withered inside of me. So much so I forget to eat my bread. I've lost my appetite for life, for food. Verse 5, because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Because you're not building up strength, you're just existing, right? And I think this is what grief does. Like food becomes our sorrow and the body is wasting away from grief because grief eats you if it's unprocessed. 
Verse 6, I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. He sees his life as like a desolate wasteland. No vegetation, no growth. Verse 7, I lie awake and I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. And this is what internal pain does. It isolates us. I have nobody I can talk. Everyone's sick of hearing this. People think I'm dramatic. And you read this and you go, it's kind of dramatic. But he's actually taking the, the time to say this is what it feels like and God is listening. And as it isolates him, because here's what it does, grief and pain makes us want to fall asleep during the day to everything else. And then at night we can't sleep because the pain is so searing that we can't find rest. And so this is what the psalmist is describing. I'm up all night and I'm, I'm alone. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Verse 8, All the day my enemies taunt me those who deride me use my name for a curse. And this is the thing. There's a human component to our suffering. Maybe my doctor doesn't listen to me and, and validate the fact that I'm actually suffering and going through something hard. The people around me want me to just get over it. Right? And so it's to the point where you feel like to everyone in your world, you're just an inconvenience because of the hard season. Now, when I pray, I use the enemy language in the Psalms to really describe the kingdom of darkness and evil spirits. Right? Like, I'm not, I, I try to steer away from saying this person in my life is evil. I, I more try to see it as like evil is at work in the world and, and maybe in this person, but I need redemption from that. But this is what we feel we feel like evil in the world taunts us brings up our failures to beat us down and our lack of success to discourage us. And so the psalmist thinks, all those around him think low of him, that he's like a curse. And not only do others think low of him, but so does he. Verse 9, For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Verse 10, Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. So the psalmist believes he has sinned and is sitting in the ruins of his consequences. He feels that God has become indignant, like turned away from him and angry with him. And he sees his story as God having lifted him up at a high point in his life and now has thrown him down because of his sins. He sees God as uncaring, even angry, and vengeful. Here's the thing. These kinds of statements come out from my girls, my daughters, towards me often. When they think that some kind of discipline that they're going through or limitations or boundaries, they often feel like I'm doing those things, that I'm uncaring, that I'm angry, that I'm vengeful. And that's normal, I think, for us. But here what we see from the psalmist is he's honest about how he feels about God. To God. Now watch what happens in verse as, as we keep moving. Verse 11 says, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. And at this point, you can almost hear the sadness run out 
the frustration kind of flickers and the pain runs out of steam. And it, all those feelings, all those emotions, and himself kind of almost pass away and wither, having been poured out to God. It's like everything he's been feeling, he's finally put words to. He's poured it out at God's feet, and now he's tired. You ever had that feeling? You're just like, I've cried all the tears I got. I've said all the feelings I can feel. That's everything. And then section three. Section three is about confession of trust and praise. So he's poured out all his emotions. And now, here's what happens. His perspective shifts to the attributes of God and away from the attributes of his suffering. This is why it's essential to lament. Because it needs to get poured out so that you have room to see something different. Does that make sense? And here's what he starts to see. Is that eventually having poured it all out, his grief is parched, now he's thirsty and ready and to see truth. And watch what happens. He almost gets caught up into the ultimate. He gets caught up into eternal truth of who God is. It's like he gets the sight. Spiritual eyes to see the world as it truly is. Where the darkness of suffering closes you in, he's poured it out in God's presence, and now he's starting to see wider and broader, and we're going to see what that does to his soul. Verse 12, but you. So all this pain, all this suffering, all this burning in his bones, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. He's starting to see God again. You are remembered throughout all generations. And that's in contrast to the lowliness of his life and the shortness of his days. God is grand. Verse 13, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. So the psalmist not only sees the greatness of God, but that he and his little life and his specific problems are caught up into something bigger than himself. And that's Zion. Zion is another uh, name for Israel, for Jerusalem, where God has given his covenants and his promises to his people. And that's helpful for us to see that our little stories are not the main story. Rather, our little story is being caught up into a bigger story. And the bigger story is that God's love is steadfast and faithful and redeeming and saving and that He never leaves and never gives up on His people. That's the bigger story. So God's promise to Israel is like God's promise to the church, his bride. And we, little insignificant us in our sorrows and suffering, are part of the bride, are part of Zion, are in covenant with God, and he's not going to drop you in the dark moment. Do you hear me? So not only does he care about your story, but your story is collected up into a big story that God's name is at risk for. God's on the hook. 
God's reputation is at stake, and you are part of that covenant. Does that make sense? And so here's what he's doing. He's starting to see, I've sinned, and my life is a mess, and I'm broken, and, it's all, and, and, and I'm, there's no strength left in me, and I'm worn out, and I don't even know if you care about me, but I know this, you are great, and Zion is great, and you've committed yourself to her. And the church is your bride, and you've committed yourself to her, and so you're not going to drop me. You see how important it is to actually be a part of something bigger than yourself? So here, God is not going to neglect his commitment to him. Verse 14. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. The psalmist sees himself holding the broken down stones of Jerusalem and treasuring its dust. Because Jerusalem in this context has been conquered by Babylon and the people have been exiled. And so he sees himself as like treasuring Jerusalem, refusing to let go of God's vision and promises for Zion despite her ruin. Do you ever feel that way about your life? Where it's like it's all ruined. And all I can do is hold the collected stones and the dust. All the visions of grandeur I had for my story seem like it's all dashed to pieces. The disappointment of what you projected your life would be like. And here he is clinging to the stones and the dust going, but I still love this. And this is actually how I feel about the Canadian church. It's a mess and there's brokenness and it's failed in all these ways and I'm holding the rocks and the dust going, I still believe this could be beautiful. And it's pity, it's empathy and mercy and grief. He sees this as going, I'm not willing to let go of the hope because he sees that this is how God thinks about those he's in covenant with. No matter how broken apart your life is, God's there holding dear the stones and the dust and saying, I love all of this and I'll remake it. Verse 15. He sees it crescendoing. That God is going to keep His commitment. He's going to restore Zion. He's going to restore Him. And nations will fear the name of the Lord. And all the kings of the earth will fear your glory for the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. This is the Lord's will. To restore Zion. To build up His church. To redeem your life. And to appear in His glory. This is God's covenant plan. For Zion, for the church, and for you. Do you believe that? This psalm will help you come to that place in the darkest valley. Verse 17, he goes on. For he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. So he sees himself. Remember, this is the withered up soul at the beginning of this psalm. And now he's saying confidently, God regards the prayer of the, lo of the lowly, withered up soul. God cares about that prayer. 
God doesn't despise that prayer. God cherishes that prayer. That's what he's saying. His situation hasn't changed, but his perspective is, isn't it? That God doesn't look down on you for your hard season. God looks more intently to you in your hard season. He doesn't despise your needs. He's devoted to your needs. That's the heart of the Creator. And the psalmist is now confident that his prayers are being heard by God. Verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. So now, not only does he think God is meeting him in his situation, he believes that his situation is going to turn out so good that the following generations are going to look back on his story and go, wow, wow. That's quite the jump of confidence from my bones are on fire and I eat ash and drink tears. Isn't it? Isn't that a jump? But I think this is the point. This is what healthy prayer does. Is it takes you from desperate need to honest lament to seeing God rightly and starting to feel different in your circumstances. Starting to see things differently. Hoping for things differently. He thinks his children's children will see the beauty of God in his redemption story. Wow. Verse 19. Because God is going to look down from His holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth. Why did He look at the earth? Verse 20, to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. Is God aloof? I don't think so. Is God angry and vengeful here? He's saying, I think God is actually committed in mercy to save me. He's seeing things differently because God is hearing His groans in the prisons of pain and is working to set Him free. That He saves those who were doomed to die. And how does He save those who are doomed to die? How much more should we pray on this side of Christ's sacrifice knowing that He will not doom us to die? Because we know that Christ came to be doomed to die to set us free. This is the fundamentals of the Gospel. I am not doomed to die because Christ was. And Christ is victorious. So does our pain have the final say over our story? That's not a rhetorical question. Does our pain have the final say over our story? No. Are we doomed to suffer and die? Is that the lengths of our story? Is that our future? Death is just a gateway into life. There's nothing in the future so bad that will tear us from the hope that is in Christ. Verse 21, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem His praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. So now he sees, not only is my situation going to be redeemed, 
Not only do I have hope for the future, but this is the grand design. God is collecting people groaning in prisons and suffering in sorrow, redeeming them to gather a people together to worship Him. It's a vision of bigger than me that I'm meant to be a part of something that we all have our individual stories of God's redemption. But when we come together on Sunday, it's an eruption of praise. A foreshadowing of eternity. Where God is present and the people are worshipful because they have specific things that they've been trusting in God for all week and they've they've come through again. He sustained them. And He pictures it as all the kingdoms and all the nations of the world gathering, having been redeemed, to worship God. This is what we do every Sunday. All over the world. Every nation, tribe, and tongue is gathering together with us and we're all worshiping Christ. Your story, your little story, is part of that bigger one. Now section 4, I'll end here. This is the final proper petition. So he's come, it's almost like he's seen heaven. He's seen the future. He sees the world rightly in God's hands. He sees his redemption story caught up in it. And now he comes down back to earth. Into the same situation he was in before. But the spiritual sight now is mingled with the earthly sight. And he's seen the truth of it all, and now he's ready to ask for the right things. Verse 23. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He shortened my days. So he's come back down to earth. Oh man, my situation still sucks. I'm worn out. And there's a part of me that thinks, I don't know if I have a future anymore. But verse 24, but oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. I've got more. I've got more in me. You whose years endure throughout all generations. So part of what he's saying here is, my life compared to your eternity is so small, why cut it short at all? Why not let me live my full day so I can glorify you? He's essentially appealing to God's eternality to say, what if we've got some more in us? What if this doesn't have the final say over me? In verse 25 to 28, he does this great tirade of how great God is. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away but you, you are the same and your years have no end and the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Surely if God, you are going to remain and you've committed yourself to me and covenanted yourself to me in Christ Jesus and you call me your child, then I will dwell secure in you and my children will dwell secure in you, and future generations will dwell secure in you, and all of this is going to be okay because we have you. That's where it ends. Starts with a gush of, this is so bad and I need some 
freaking help, please, to a pouring out of honest lament, and then seeing God rightly and ending with a confident, victorious, I'm okay if I have you. And the circumstance hasn't changed yet. Doesn't that seem like the the prayer that we need to learn to pray? Why we would need the psalmist to be our mentors? What this ends up looking like if we you kind of allow ourselves to be taught by this is that prayer in the time of affliction is a reflex for us, is fully honest, we're fully ourselves in it, is trusting and ends in confidence. That's the prayer of the afflicted person according to the Scripture. So for you, for me, you made it here today. Well done. You turned to the right place. You turned to Him in the moment of your affliction in your life. And you are free and safe here to be totally honest about what you're going through. And find the seed of faith to trust in Jesus. That He'll be enough for you to redeem you. You can leave here with a new confidence that if he's got you, you're going to be okay. So where do we see the level of his commitment? Where do we see the clarity that God is bound to us? And we're bound to him. We see it at the covenant meal. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Take it. Be united to me. Renew our covenant to one another. Go into another week knowing that you have me and I've given myself fully to you. You can trust me enough to give yourself fully to me. That's communion. Interested? So take a quiet moment, quiet your heart, and prepare yourself for that covenant. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we gather at the Lord's table, we must recall the promises and warnings given to us in the Scriptures. Let us therefore examine our